as I'm walking in through the double doors, I notice a, a man standing by the reception desk. And it looked like he had like a revolver. And I'm like, are we filming something? Why? You know, what's this guy doing? And as soon as I came through the second set of glass doors, he pointed at me and started shouting, you know, on the ground, on the ground. And you kind of go into this like, okay. And my hands go up in the air and I took a couple of steps forward and I ended up laying face down on the marble floor of uh, the lobby. And uh, the man is continuing to shout and I'm just, you know, thoughts are running through my head. You know, what is going on here? Who would want to rob Discovery? We don't keep any money here. And then he said the words that uh, would end up changing my life, really. Uh, And that was, uh, have a bomb and I'll blow us all up. And that's when I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm a hostage. Hey everybody, J.D. Flynn here. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines each week. This week on the podcast, you're going to hear the voice of Jim McNulty. Jim was one of three people held hostage in 2010 at the Discovery Network headquarters in Maryland. Jim was held hostage for about four hours before he made a run for it, and he survived. But those four hours left a pretty big mark on Jim. Within hours of his escape, he began to show signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. Before we give the episode over to Jim and to his story, I just want to take a look at what post-traumatic stress disorder actually is. What do we know about it? What are some of the symptoms? Who does it affect? When we experience something that's really, really awful and really life-changing, and clearly we can't unlearn that. Jennifer Madair is president of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. She told us that post-traumatic stress disorder typically manifests in three ways, right after a traumatic experience. After the event is over, so when there's objective safety or objective conclusion to the event, they still feel a sense of threat in some ways. That could be emotionally, that could be physically, that could be just kind of hypervigilance in the environment or in relationships, there's some kind of avoidance pattern. So maybe they avoid certain things that remind them of the event or they might just withdraw in general. And then there's some kind of re-experiencing. You know, classically, the flashback, you know, like reliving pieces of the traumatic event. But it can be emotional and somatic or physical as well as kind of living in a movie of the event. PTSD is still a relatively new diagnosis. The American Psychiatric Association added PTSD to its Manual of Mental Disorders only in 1980. And until very recently, most PTSD research involved veterans of war. The veterans have taught the psychological community a lot about PTSD, and most of the research has focused around that. Um, Because originally PTSD was only categorized for war trauma. That's not the case anymore. We now know that survivors of other types of trauma, not just war, can show signs of PTSD. People like Jim, or people who have suffered from domestic violence or from sexual abuse. The good news? Jennifer said that PTSD is something that can be treated. The symptoms of PTSD can absolutely be treated and 
quote-unquote cured, meaning they don't have to live with it forever. It's not a lifetime illness, although the realization of what can happen in the world might remain, if that makes sense. Usually, when it comes to treating PTSD, there's a healing of the memory that needs to happen, kind of like redigesting the memory so the brain can let go of what it doesn't need to hold on to. While the person does still remember the event, they don't have the extra charge to the memory anymore. They're able to let go of that and be able to have it just be a memory, just be a horrible experience, but not affect them anymore. Jennifer said treatment for PTSD can be like particularly difficult for people of faith. The experience of what does it mean about me that I was part of something so horrible? Right. And what does it mean about the world and what does it mean about God that these things happen? someone who's Catholic or someone who has a strong faith, their experience, you know, say in war, needs to somehow be brought into communion with their faith, helping them to find, um, whether it's meaning in suffering, whether it's forgiveness for any errors that they had or mercy for things that they experienced and maybe God didn't intend or wouldn't intend but was part of their job can be a big part of the process so they don't feel unduly responsible for the evil in the world that they witnessed or they experienced or were part of. Again, this episode is the story of Jim McNulty, a Catholic who was held hostage in 2010. Jim developed post-traumatic stress disorder after that hostage situation. He talks about the isolation he felt and the unique ministry he started for other victims of trauma. Jim talks about his experience as a hostage in the first part of this episode. If you don't want to hear the details, feel free to fast forward to minute 18 for the second half of the show, where Jim talks about navigating PTSD and developing his ministry to other trauma victims. Jim's story, though, is powerful, so stay tuned. So uh, September 1st, 2010, I was a marketing producer uh, for the cable network TLC, which is one of the Discovery Networks. And at the time, Discovery Network's headquarters was based in Silver Spring, Maryland. I was actually scheduled to be off-site at an edit facility. I was working on um, some test promos for a new series that was going to be coming out. I was scheduled to be on a conference call kind of over my lunch break. Um, and at the same time, I was supposed to do my fantasy football draft. So my, my plan was, um, I, I can be on the phone call, I can do the draft, and I can still be editing, and everything will be great. As uh, fate would have it, um, we didn't have an even number of players, so the draft got automatically canceled. And then I thought, well, since the draft is canceled and we're going to be working with these, this new vendor, why don't I drive over and I can be there in person? I leave the edit facility and I drive over to Discovery. And because I wasn't planning to be there, I didn't have my badge. So I ended up parking over in a parking lot that was adjacent to the building and was walking over. I kind of, you know, go, there's like a double set of glass doors. And if you're familiar with how that lobby was set up, it was kind of like a two or three story glass 
um, expansive lobby. There was a, a fully reconstructed Tyrannosaurus rex fossil. Um, so I can give you just kind of the idea of the scope of this lobby. And as I'm walking in through the double doors, I notice a, a man standing by the reception desk. And it looked like he had like a revolver. And I'm like, are we filming something? Why, you know, what's this guy doing? And as soon as I came through the second set of glass doors, he pointed at me and started shouting, you know, on the ground, on the ground. And you kind of go into this like, okay. And my hands go up in the air and I took a couple of steps forward and I ended up laying face down on the marble floor of uh, the lobby. And uh, the man is continuing to shout, and I'm just, you know, thoughts are running through my head. You know, what is going on here? Who would want to rob Discovery? We don't keep any money here. And then he said the words that uh, would end up changing my life, really. Uh, and that was, uh, have a bomb, and I'll blow us all up. And that's when I thought to myself, oh, my God, I'm a hostage. There's someone in the building with guns. I can see and see people on the floor in the building. There's people on the floor in the building? Yes, I can see it. Officials in Silver Spring, Maryland say James Lee burst into the Discovery Channel suburban D.C. headquarters carrying a handgun and wearing explosives. He held a security guard and two Discovery employees hostage in the lobby. I have a gun and I have a bomb. I have several bombs strapped to my body, ready to go off. We have uh, an ongoing hostage situation. Lee took two employees and a security officer hostage yesterday afternoon. This is apparently not Lee's first encounter with the Discovery Channel. In 2008, he was arrested outside the building. He was apparently upset with the network's programming, blaming the network for not doing more to protect the planet. After Lee's 2008 protest, he was ordered to stay 500 feet away from Discovery headquarters as part of his probation. That probation ended two weeks ago. So I started saying Hail Mary after Hail Mary after Hail Mary on the floor and guardian angel prayers and uh, St. Michael, you name it. I was calling in every favor I could. And um, at one point, I uh, just, you know, I said, okay, God, your will be done. And um, this peace came over me that uh, allowed me to, to think clearly and to come up with a plan. The way that the man was was shouting, um, you could tell that he he was sociopathic, and he was, you know, Discovery wasn't doing enough to save the world. I remember thinking, if he finds out that I'm a producer for TLC, I'm a dead man. Um, you know, think of the TLC shows on at the time. You know, the Duggar family. You know, with 19 kids and counting at the time, John and Kate plus eight. He was very, you know, population control and the stuff that I worked on represented kind of the antithesis of his uh, manifesto there. So I tried to come up with something that would be as innocuous as possible. And I started going like through my head, okay, what what can I do? Can I go into financing? No, like money might, you know, piss him off. Uh, so I came up with scheduling. You know, if he asks me, I'm in scheduling. And, you know, it was a good thing that I came up with this plan because a uh, short while later, you know, you and the in the glasses stand up. I'm like, okay, great. And and when I stood up, I recognized that he was wearing an improvised explosive device. And he started interrogating me. You know, what do you do? 
And this was kind of like that moment of truth, like, all right, I guess we're going to go with this plan. And uh, I lied to him. I said, uh, I'm in ske- scheduling. Well, what does that mean? And I told him. And uh, later he would interrogate the, the second hostage that came in. And he followed my lead. I didn't know at the time who he was, but he followed my lead and he lied to him too. And the guy said, damn it, I didn't get anybody good. There were phone calls that would come in from news agencies, from police negotiators. and A lot of the time you could hear the other side of the conversation because you would put on speakerphone. So we knew it wasn't going well. The security guard actually convinced the terrorist to let both of us stand up at the same time. And it was then that I recognized that the other hostage was actually my coworker that sat cat a corner to me. <laughs> so 1,900 people and the two of us that ended up there were two folks that sat right next to each other that came in at different times. The security guard started, you know, becoming more animated and he had been very stoic the entire time. And I looked over at my coworker and he held three fingers on, you know, below his arm and it was a countdown. And I just kind of nodded like, okay, I guess it's time to run. Um, and I had noticed that the uh, SWAT team shoulder kind of over by the elevators earlier in the, in the day. So I knew that help was close. So Chris literally just went three, two, one, but then nothing happened. And it turns out in, in hearing his story later that at that moment, the terrorist had looked up. So we all kind of froze. So Chris put his fingers down again. During this time, the, the terrorist was on the phone, kind of distracted by the police negotiator. Um, and it went three, two, one. And then on first motion, I hightailed it for this giant cement pillar that was you know, in the lobby to take cover going in the direction that I, you know, opposite of where I thought the, the SWAT team was going to be coming. When I got behind it, I turned around to realize that Chris had run for the front door. I'm like, oh my God, I went the wrong way. And this voice kind of went off in my head, almost like in uh, Star Wars, like run, Luke, run. Um, Except it was my own voice and saying, you can't stay here, go. So as I emerged from behind the pillar, I noticed that the gunman had, had started to chase after us, went, hey, 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 and fired a shot in the air. So in that moment, I started booking for the front door. I get to the first set of, of double doors. I get to the second. And as I'm about to get out, I hear the sound of what was the flash grenade, this kind of hissing. I get outside. I hang a right for the, the driveway, the circle. And I do a baseball slide on the brick. Finally, I can hear, you know, police officers shouting at me, stay down, stay down, stay down. Inside the the lobby, you heard the SWAT team, as they said to me later, eliminating the threat. Pop, 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 pop. And it ended up being two different exchanges of gunfire, probably six to ten each time. U.S. police have ended a siege by shooting dead a gunman at the Discovery Channel's headquarters near Washington. He pulled out uh, the handgun that he came in with and pointed it at one of the hostages. But at that point, our tactical units moved in. They shot the suspect. Those hostages have now been freed. That night, 
you know, once we've been reunited and my wife and my brother picked me up and back with my kids and I didn't recognize the eyes staring back at me in the mirror. And that was the first clue that something bigger might be going on after this entire ordeal was over. Because it really wasn't over, it was really just beginning for me. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Kate Oliveira here. I'm a producer on this show. Our team has been working remotely since about mid-March, and it's been a really big adjustment. One of the biggest changes for me is losing my commute to and from the office. I used to spend a lot of time in my car. A lot of times I'd listen to music or pray. A lot of times I'd listen to my favorite podcasts. Since losing my commute, I've found that I'm listening to fewer podcasts, and I'm not alone. The listenership for many major podcasts dropped by 10% or so between March and April, and CNA Newsroom was no exception. So do us a favor. After you listen to this episode of CNA Newsroom, cue up another one. Listening and subscribing to CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk doesn't cost you anything, but it helps us out a lot. The more people listen to our podcasts, the more likely it is that podcast apps will recommend our shows to new listeners. So search for CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk on your favorite podcast app. Tap the subscribe button and enjoy. And now, back to the episode. Today's episode is about Jim McNulty. Jim was one of three people held hostage in 2010 at the Discovery Network's headquarters in Maryland. Jim talked about his experience in the first part of this episode. Before the break, Jim was reunited with his family, his wife and children. He was back home. But he said that when he looked in the mirror on the night of the hostage crisis, he didn't recognize the eyes looking back at him. Jim said that was the first clue that something bigger might be going on. There's something else Jim remembers about the night of the incident. He remembers reaching out to his boss to apologize because that day, the day he was held hostage, he hadn't finished his work. You know, I'm telling my boss, sorry, I didn't get done my assignments for today. And she's like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. Um, and I'm thinking I'm going to be back to work the next day. And she's like, you're, you're going to take some time. The next morning, Jim's boss met him at his house. She arranged for Jim to meet with a few local counselors. She also put Jim in contact with an FBI crisis counselor. Jim said talking with those counselors was helpful. But, you know, the more I talked to my wife and, you know, the more symptoms I was having, it was pretty clear that this was bigger than anything that I had um, the experience to deal with on my own. Still, Jim was adamant about returning to work. And he says he drove to the office a few weeks after the incident, but it was too soon. His body would not let him walk through the doors of the Discovery Network building, where he'd been a hostage just a few weeks earlier. I had to work with a medical professional to be able to even walk through that threshold, because the first time I tried, I collapsed. 
just everything overwhelmed me that that you know innate defense mechanism that we're all built with you know was an overdrive jim says the trauma also affected his relationship with god i don't really consider myself overly religious i used you know i joke a lot that there's an old south park episode where they referred to religious fantastics uh, and I would get very uncomfortable around overly zealous, overly pious people. But Jim is certain that he felt the Holy Spirit during the hostage crisis, guiding him and giving him strength. When I first recognized that, I sobbed. Um, I felt very unworthy. In the weeks and months following the crisis, Jim says that feeling of support from God faded. He knew something had changed on the inside. He needed God and he needed the church to help him navigate that change. But God and the church seemed silent to him. I you know, spoke to a couple of the priests after Mass to just kind of you know, say, hey, this happened to me. And they're like, oh, I'm so glad you're okay. And that was kind of the extent of it. People don't know necessarily what to do with you. Like They're so taken aback by you know, the story that you tell them of this trauma that you went through. And most people really aren't equipped to be able to know how to help you. Jim remembers that he reached a breaking point during Christmas Mass, a few months after the hostage crisis. Um, we're sitting at front of the church, and I knew it was going to be emotional for me. And I was doing pretty well um, until communion. And goodness, I want to say it was silent night, but I could be wrong. Um, but I just started sobbing in the front pew. Having reached out and not getting really any outreach and being a church, I felt kind of empty. Um, I was not finding any, any joy in going to Mass, and we were fe feeling kind of disconnected. It made Jim angry. There are times that I was yelling at God, cursing at God, and I had actually stopped praying. You know, and here I had had this tremendously spiritual experience during the trauma. And then even having recognized some of this stuff, uh, but maybe not all of it at this point, maybe a year into it, I was still trying to find my way. Um, I was angry. And uh, it's uh, it's difficult because... So much of PT is a lack of control. And, you know, it's it's in trusting that, that God does have a plan. Um, and even the bad stuff, um, that's not, you know, that's not an easy pill to swallow. It's not an easy cross to bear sometimes. Um, because you don't understand why you're reacting the way you are. Um and you just desperately want to get back to some semblance of normal. Um, and to, to accept that you're not in control is really difficult, especially when you had control taken away from you. You want that control back. And it's almost counterintuitive that in letting go, you know, as they say in um, AA, in letting go and letting God, there's a peace in that that you don't have to do it all. You, you can, you know, give up some control. Jim and his family switched parishes. Jim remembers meeting one of the priests at his new parish. He set up some time for us to, to actually talk. And I told him the entire story from beginning to end. The priest suggested that Jim read the writings of Father Walter Chiswick, 
Father Chizik spent 23 years in Soviet prisons and labor camps in Siberia during the Cold War. I recognize a lot of what I experienced in, in Father Chizik's story. I mean, Father actually describes this peace that came over him when he was broken. Father Chizik reminded Jim of that experience of peace that he had had at the start of the hostage crisis. And that was the first um, moment where I went, oh my God, that was real. And that's what started leading me down this, this road of perhaps this is part of God's will for me. I remember at one point driving on the Capitol Beltway, heading back towards Silver Spring. At first I had like very angry song lyrics bubble up and I ended up writing some very angry song lyrics. But then there was um, an Old Testament that kind of popped into my head. <laughs> um, and it was Isaiah, for Jerusalem's sake will not be quiet, for Zion's sake will not be still. And it was the first kind of clue to me that I was being called to do something. I kept coming back to this idea that I was alive for a reason, and I was desperately trying to figure out what that reason was. One night, Jim was watching the news with his wife. They saw a segment about actor Rain Wilson, you know, Dwight from The Office, working with doctors in Haiti after a destructive earthquake. And I turned to my wife and said, you know, here's somebody who's actually doing something. You know, I keep talking about how I, I, I feel like I'm being called, I need to do something. But, you know, here's this actor who is actually doing good work. Like, maybe I should be, and I just kind of paused a minute, and then helping people with PTSD. And I kind of hung in the air. I'm like, oh my God, that's it. And I started sobbing again. There's a lot of tears through this whole process. Um, but I really like that I, I can do that. I, I'm 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 in communications. I can talk about my experience. I can write. I can talk. I, I can help people with PTSD. Jim took the idea to his pastor, who suggested that Jim develop the idea into a program the parish could host. And I started to set out to write, you know, kind of the the like a brochure. You know, I put my marketing hat on. Well, what would this be about? And what would our our you know what would our mission statement be? And what would our values be? It was around the time of Easter, and you, you read the story of, of the upper room, and the apostles were traumatized by the crucifixion, and they went and hid. It wasn't until Jesus came and said, peace be with you, that they were able to actually go ahead and proclaim the gospel. So the idea was to, to create the same safe place for survivors where we could pray for the Holy Spirit to help us. And that's why... The group's called The Upper Room. The Upper Room has met once a month for the past eight years at Jim's parish in the D.C. area. It's a peer-to-peer -peer support group. And Jim makes it pretty clear that the group is not meant to replace professional help. Instead, it's a safe place for victims of trauma to come and share their stories and feel connected. Sometimes we, you know, talk about something that happened to us and people recognize a symptom. Like, you know what? That's happened to me and here's what you know, what I experienced, and it just kind of it creates this camaraderie of, of understanding. Just because our stories are different, the human body reacts to trauma the same way. Even though, you know, one person may be a veteran, one person may be a violent crime survivor, one person may be an abuse survivor. Jim usually comes up with a theme for each meeting. Sometimes they'll talk about the most recent Sunday Mass readings. Sometimes they talk about feast days, 
or sometimes we'll just read, you know, the, the Gospel of John where the upper room is just, you know, talked about. And then we try to connect that to where each of us is in our healing journey um, from the last time we met. We try to, you know, continue to be hopeful and and find moments of hope and 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 find moments of progress. And um, it's been really interesting just to see different people at different points in their journey and see improvement. And it's really, you know, I had said from the outset, if if I can help one person through the telling of my story, then all of the things that I've been worth have been through is worth it. Jim says he felt that God was missing from those early days of navigating his PTSD. And he hopes the upper room fills that gap for other victims of trauma. So what I've been trying to do is kind of use my, you know, marketing background and um, my personal experience to try to connect the dots for people. Because really, everything that, you know, we talk about is kind of connecting the dots between existing, you know, uh, doctrine and tradition and, you know, um, Bible readings and prayers and, you know, the liturgical calendar and just try to um, help people on their own healing journey make sense of it. Jim continues to share his story of trauma, and he's still recovering. It's not like his PTSD just magically disappeared overnight. But he says connecting his PTSD and his Catholic faith has made a world of difference. I can tell you today that without my faith, I don't think we're having this conversation um, because I, I wasn't strong enough on my own to get through all of this. I mean, even saying it out loud 10 years later just sounds ridiculous. I was taken hostage by an eco-terrorist in the lobby of my office building at Discovery Channel in Silver Spring, Maryland. It just sounds like something you wouldn't even, you know, script up for a, 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 a piece of fiction, let alone live. You know, it would be a lot easier sometimes to, to not have to continue to talk about it, but um, that was not God's plan for me. So um, I've accepted that and I continue to, to take advantage of opportunities like this to, to tell my story and, and let other survivors know that you know, their experience is valid and that hope is alive and that, you know, just trust that, you know, God saw you through your tra- your traumatic event and he's not going to abandon you during your recovery. For more information about the upper room and post-traumatic stress disorder, take a look at the show notes for this episode. And if you or someone you know is processing trauma or showing symptoms of PTSD, Jim suggests that you seek professional help. He also recommends reading Father Walter Chiswick's spiritual autobiography, He Leadeth Me, and attending a healing mass. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Very special thanks this week to Jennifer Madera and, of course, to Jim McNulty. God bless you, everybody. 